Let's open our Bibles to Matthew 19 there. In that first part of the chapter, we find a discussion between Jesus and the Pharisees, and Jesus ostensibly goes on and speaks with his disciples alone at the end of the section. The subject matter is the foundations of Christian marriage. Deals with marriage, singleness, divorce, and remarriage. And what we're taking our time doing these weeks is establishing the fuller and broader biblical themes regarding marriage and these other issues because it is so vital and relevant, especially in this day. So we are so blessed to have these truths. Such a joy to be with you studying these things today. Let me read this and we will get started. Matthew chapter 19, I'll read the entire section, verses 1 down to verse 12. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. There are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Pray that God blesses the reading of his word. This morning I want to start with a negative example, a negative illustration, a bad marriage that you may be surprised to learn about. The great evangelist from the Great Awakening in England and the colonies, John Wesley, suffered a terrible marriage, proof that none of us are exempt, right, when it comes to pursuing a God-glorifying, gospel-picturing marriage. For one thing, Wesley had a problem with commitment. He fell in love with a wonderful girl who actually loved him back, and I think there was a time when they both believed they would marry one another, but he parried and hedged and waited and couldn't commit, and eventually some other fellow came in and swept her off her feet and married her, and they lived happily ever after. Then another young lady, it became obvious to everyone that this couple would indeed marry, but the same thing happened. Same song, second verse. Wesley had problems committing, making the commitment, and eventually I think some of his family came in and said, yeah, just don't marry her anyway. Well, a number of years passed, and John by this time was in his 40s, and uh, on one of his trips to London, he was actually crossing the London Bridge, slipped on some ice, 
and hurt himself pretty severely. They rushed him to the hospital, and there was a young Christian nurse there by the name of Mary who actually knew who John was and kind of idolized him as a big-time Christian leader. Now, this time, Wesley did not waste any time. By the end of that very week, they were married. Sadly, though, that marriage was a disaster. It was with little love or intimacy. They had no children together, seemingly no desire for children. In fact, eventually, they would not spend much time together at all. One of Wesley's friends wrote in his journal that one day he approached the home and he heard some shouting and came into the house and he said Mary had grabbed John by the hair and pulled him down to the floor screaming at him and eventually pulled that chunk out of his head. Explains why some of you guys are bald. Not a happy marriage at all, not a happy sight. Soon they would separate, not legally, as far as I can tell, it wasn't a legal separation, but they just parted ways, lived in different places and never really spoke to one another. John, in his journal in 1771, wrote the following, I came to London London, and was informed that my wife had died. This evening she was buried, though I was not told about it. Tragic end to a tragic marriage. It goes without saying, this marriage did not display Christ and his bride. It was not what God intended for marriage in terms of a, a picture of salvation, a picture of the gospel. It hurt the message of Christ. In fact, it probably hurt more than just his friend who saw that thing happen. It probably hurt the message of the gospel even more than John knew. A few years ago, I was reading one of my favorite authors, and he admitted openly in the book that I was reading that his marriage was in constant disorder. He said there's enough strife in his marriage between him and his wife that they need constant counseling. Every week they needed some sort of accountability. Even though he'd been pastoring a church for some 30 years, speaking at conferences, he revealed to me that this man did not have control over his family and probably did not qualify to even be a pastor of a church. And I'll be honest with you, that was the last book I read of his. As time has progressed, one of his adult children has sort of mildly left the faith. He's sort of generically a Christian Another one of his children now has joined the ranks of those who persistently and consistently mock Christ and Christianity and all Christians. Now, you may be saying, Pastor, I'm not a famous preacher. I'm not married to one. I'm not even a non-famous preacher. But there's something that we all need to keep in mind. The holiness demanded of pastors and preachers the exact same for all of us. Your elders that are here in the church, pastors and pastors at large, even John Wesley and others, we all live up to the same standard of holiness that you live up to. Now, we have more levels of accountability, and there's more required of us in terms of how we're let into the eldership, but we're all called to the same standard of holiness. And the fact is, even if you're not a pastor of a church, your marriage, whether it's healthy or unhealthy, affects others. It spills out. God has wired the human race to to look to marriages, specifically Christian marriages, as an example of saving faith in the gospel of Christ and the bride. And when a marriage is healthy, it does a good job exemplifying that relationship. If it's a bad marriage, it does a terrible job. It calls upon disgrace to the truth of Christ. Your marriage impacts impacts your kids first and foremost. It impacts those who are close to you, your friends, and others of those, perhaps those in your small group here at church. It impacts other folks who are 
relatives, especially those who don't know Christ, they're, they're looking at you, they're peeking into your marriage that's supposed to be better than theirs. So the same could be said about your impact on the outside world. Your co-workers, they're looking in. Others are looking in to see the status of your marriage. So if God has created marriage and wired humanity to see it as a parable of Christ and the church, it follows that no matter how uninfluential you think you are, the health of your marriage is vital to the positive impact of the kingdom and the gospel. Now, this is the argument here for my third point or third foundation, flowing from the first two foundations that we've studied the last couple of weeks. We've said this, essentially this, if marriage is a treasure woven into creation, and if marriage is a parable picturing our salvation, then it should follow that, number three, marriage unity and harmony should be pursued at all costs. Your marriage, unity, and harmony should be pursued at all costs. So that's what I'd like to discuss today. How should we pursue this? There's not a ton here of what Jesus says detailing how we actually do this, do this, but he does give us some idea. And as we follow and sort of broaden the context of Jesus' words here, what we'll find is a lot of application and how the Bible tells us to pursue unity and harmony in our marriage. I'll admit this is not a comprehensive list. This is not a, a list of tips and tricks. If you do these five things or four things or whatever it is, you, your marriage will be healthy. I know that uh, sometimes marriage speeches are given like this. If you just do these four things, if you just learn this certain language, if you do, do it like this, everything's going to be fine. That's not true. There's a whole lot more to it. But this at least gives us an idea of how the Bible tells us that we can pursue harmony and un- unity in our marriages. How do we sanctify our marriages? How do we pursue health and unity and harmony? Maybe you want to write these down. I didn't, well, wasn't able to get these slides to uh, the folks, so there won't be anything on the screen for you, but there are several things here. Maybe you want to write these down. Number one, decide you will fight for your marriage. I didn't say just fight in your marriage. That's a given. We all do that. Fight for the sake of your marriage or marriage health. Strive for the preservation and health of your marriage. That's what it means, fight for your marriage. Now, look there at Matthew 19.6. Again, probably heard these words in a wedding a time or two. So they are no longer two, this is Jesus speaking, but Jesus, after he quotes the Old Testament, speaks. They're no longer two, but one flesh. What, therefore, God has joined together. Let not man separate. Or the old King James, let not anyone tear asunder. This, when I do marriage counseling, this is the second place that I go. People are having problems in their marriage. They come to me. I ask this question, are you both willing to fight for your marriage? Are you willing to do all you can do to provide harmony and unity in your marriage. And the great assurance I can give them both, if they both answer affirmatively, yes, I want to fight for marriage, I can give them the affirmation or, or, or encouragement that then your marriage will be okay. You'll get through this if you're both willing to fight for your marriage. They're both committed to doing whatever th- ever things they need to do, making whatever sacrifice they need to make in order to make their marriage healthy. Now, you hear me say, this is the second place I go. What's the first thing? Well, the first thing I want to find out is if they're both Christians. 
If they're not both believers, if they're not both pursuing sanctification, if they're not both eyes fixed on Christ and understanding of salvation and God's Spirit is working in them in terms of making them more and more mature, then they, they might be okay. They might find some tips and tricks to, to, to solve some problems, but we're certainly not guaranteed that. And so the first place I always go is whether or not they have their eyes both fixed on Christ and they're pursuing Christ, if they're both pursuing sanctification. If so, in that process, you will also be committed to the maturity and health and unity in your marriage. And let me tell you something. I've seen some of the most corrupted, messed up marriages fixed just simply with this determination. I've seen couples, I've counseled with couples who have had dozens of marital affairs and it work out because they're both committed to being married and committed to one another for the glory of God. I've seen couples come and there's been homosexual activity in the marriage, outside of the marriage, all mixed up, but because they're both believers and they're both genuinely pursuing Christ and pursuing a healthy marriage, I've seen these things come together. These couples, they jump in the foxhole together, they begin to fight, they have a common enemy, it's self, it's sin, it's Satan. They join together fighting for the sake of their marriage and the glory of God. They no longer see each other as, as enemies, but allies. They put on God's armor, they go to battle together, and even if they, they mess up, even if there's friendly fire from time to time, they forgive one another and they continue to move forward to a healthy marriage. If you're believers, this is the starting point. Take Jesus' words seriously. What God has joined together, let no man or anyone, let no woman or no man, let no one separate. That's where it begins. You take each other in the hand and you pray, God, these are our marching orders. We're not going to let anything break us up. We want to obey your son, Jesus Christ. We want to fight for our marriage. We will not be the ones that separate. If you're not married yet or you're at the start of a marriage, start with that commitment. We will never divorce. We will never separate. We will not be the ones. One of those statistics of so many people, so many Christians who are supposed to picture Christ in the church and yet we can't seem to figure it out. We will not be that. We will fight together for the health and unity of our marriage. Okay, that's the first one. Second, demonstrate humility with constant repentance and forgiveness. Demonstrate humility with constant repentance and forgiveness. Let's go back one chapter. You remember this. We've been studying Matthew for quite some time, and if you can remember all the way back to chapter 18, just one chapter... Matthew 18 begins with an illustration. Remember, Jesus takes a child and ostensibly takes that child, sets him on his knees, and, and this becomes the word picture for the entire chapter of Matthew 18. And, of course, this is the word picture. The word picture is that we are all children, and we, should, we come into the kingdom as children, and then we should treat one another in a nice way as children. This is all about relationships we have with other believers, specifically, and we learn this in the area of discipline, specifically other believers in our church, the other believers in our local church. We see one another as children in all the best ways. We, we came into the kingdom with humility. 
We came as children. We came into the kingdom with no credentials, no accomplishments, no rights, no merits. We came in total dependence on Jesus Christ. And He provided us righteousness, a righteousness not our own, to cover us before God. That He provided us payment for sin and His atonement. And He provides us eternal life with God forever. And we, we came into the kingdom that way, and so then we see one another that way as, as fellow children. As ones who have also humbled themselves and become like children to enter the kingdom. We've all entered the kingdom in humility, and so we then protect one another as fellow children. We love one another as fellow children. Of course, we learn this, that in your process of loving one another as fellow children, you, you rescue one another. That's the story of the lost sheep, right? We, we go on a journey. If, if someone is followed after sin, we love that person enough to rescue that child, that fellow child. And Jesus gives this gentle pattern that you would want for any erring child, this pattern of patience and grace and kindness and opportunity and uh, for these people to demonstrate repentance and for you then to demonstrate and offer forgiveness. So going back to that starting point, the basis of repentance and forgiveness is that humility that you enter as a child, the humility that you see your need, the humility to... to uh, believe and do and trust what Christ has done for you, and then the humility to quickly repent of what you've done, and then on top of that, the, re- the humility to then offer forgiveness for anyone else who sins. You see how that kind of humility would be vital in marriage? The readiness to admit sin, the readiness to admit fault, the readiness to repent of that sin, and then the readiness when your spouse says, admitted and repented of their sin to offer forgiveness and to reconcile and to come together once again. Marriage becomes a place for that constant demonstration of humility, gospel humility that feeds repentance and forgiveness. And there's no end to it. Just like your relationship with Christ, you're constantly repenting and turning from sin and constantly reminded of of what Christ has done for you in terms of forgiveness In marriage, you're both repenting and asking one another's forgiveness and offering that forgiveness. And you'll do this until you die or until Jesus calls us home, right? The humility to repent and forgive becomes the fabric of your relationship with your spouse. It's the fabric of marriage. It's what ties you together. Even getting back to point one, it's what unites you in your effort against sin and self and Satan. This is why I hold that it's so important that both spouses understand the gospel and be Christians, because if they aren't, they won't understand true, genuine repentance and forgiveness. I'll speak more later on in our study here about those of you who married to unbelievers. But even if you can begin to pursue these ideals of humility that then fosters repentance and forgiveness... This is the heart of what it is to be a Christian living among other Christians, not the least of which is your spouse. This is the fabric of your relationship. Before I move on, I have to say this. I tend to believe that most marriage problems can be solved if you just live by those first two principles. Yes, there are other things, and sometimes there are mental issues or perhaps psychological issues or physical issues that marriage, married people deal with, and there's some things that are deep and convoluted. I understand that. It's not that I don't believe those things are important, 
But I think most people's marriages would be solved if they just pursue those first two things. They fight for their marriage, and they show the kind of humility to offer repentance and forgiveness, constantly living in that humility. I think you'd be surprised if both of you began doing that. You'd be surprised at the health that's introduced into your marriage. Decide you'll fight for your marriage. Demonstrate humility and constant repentance and forgiveness. Third, determine to worship together. Determine to worship together. Now, this is more than just attending worship services on the Lord's Day together. It starts there for sure. It definitely is no less than that. It begins, at the very least, with coming to church and sitting next to one another and worshiping God together in a church. I think it was Martin Lloyd-Jones who would not counsel people who had marriage problems until they came to ten consecutive worship services together and sat next to one another. If you were to talk to any of the pastors for marriage counsel, one of, the way, one of the things that they would tell you is, by the way, this counseling will end if you refuse to come to worship. Why? Because this tells us of your general posture towards God, towards the people of God, towards the Word of God, and if it's clear to us, you, you are rebellious, you don't want to worship God, you don't want to study the Word, then how can we expect that your, your marriage would be healthy? So this certainly is a starting point. In terms of worshiping together, you start by faithfully coming to corporate worship. If you're not faithful to do that, I have no confidence you're serious about being faithful to one another, faithful to the Lord. Well, where do we get this? Well, there's a pattern here in Matthew in chapter 18. We have the words, Jesus' words about the church, about the pursuit of holiness by the members of the church, the accountability that's, that's provided within the context of the church. And then following that, in chapter 19, we have this direct application of, of these truths inside a marriage. What church member is closer to you than the one who's in your bed, the one that you're married to? That church member, of all other church members, that church member... You owe the greatest amount of dedication and repentance and forgiveness, and this process ought to be happening all the time, just as they owe it you. In chapter 18, we have these words about the local church, the pursuit of holiness. Then we have the application, the most direct application there in marriage, discussion of church, the role and purpose of the church in the Christian's life, the pursuit of holiness, chapter 18, directly applies to marriage, chapter 19. And then we see this pattern repeated several times in other places in the Bible. It's repeated in Paul's writings twice, Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3. And then we see Peter also repeats this same pattern, a discussion of the church, a discussion of the pursuit of holiness and the accountability and love church members for one another, and then following that, marriage. That's 1 Peter chapters 2 and 3. A people, a church in pursuit of holiness, accountable, discipled by one another, and then how it fleshes itself out first in marriage. Discussion of the objective of the church the members in pursuit of Christ-likeness, and then how this can happen, first and foremost, in marriage and family. In other words, if you have a proper understanding of the purpose of a church, people bonded together, covenanted together, 
If you're constantly encouraged from the pulpit to be like Jesus, to pursue that holiness, to be his body, to be the bride of Christ, to submit to Christ, to help one another in that effort, the most obvious and most immediate application of those commands are in our marriages. So, determining to worship together may start with Sunday worship, but a commitment to worshiping together is far more than that. It's the adoption of this, this whole order of things. It's the adoption of the whole order of, of God's two institutions. There's only two institutions that God created that exist among us today, and that is marriage and the church. The, the adoption of those two things, the, the biblical view of, of marriage and the church, marriage which begins with covenant and vows, church membership that also begins with covenant and vows. It's a deep commitment. It's a life-changing commitment. It's a commitment that you see not just to one another in marriage, but to this whole order of God's institution. Your marriage, you begin to make that commitment, your marriage will thrive and be healthy in that context. It will not be healthy, by the way, if you avoid the church. There are some couples that think they can just do it alone, and, and perhaps they found some sort of rhythm or contentment, you could say, being away from the church, but ultimately they're not experiencing what they would if they were a part of a faithful church. But what are those demands of a church? What are those things to which we are held accountable by one another? Let me give you a few expectations that believers in a church should live up to, and these expectations are directly related to your relationship with your spouse. Ephesians chapter 5, just looking at these, these passages that I mentioned, Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, 1 Peter 2 and 3. Ephesians 5, uh, the end of the chapter, of course, is all about marriage. You're familiar with this. We've read it several times in our, t- in our study. But before Paul gets to that, God inspired Paul to write, begin with the basic committed commitments of a body of believers. He says in Ephesians 5 to be imitators of God. He says to the church, be imitators, walk in love as Christ loved us. He says to put away all sexual immorality, crude behavior, and crude language. That's verses 3 and 4. He says don't be deceived, rather walk in truth and life, and light that is. And he says don't be deceptive, don't follow in that deception. That's verses 6 all the way down to 14. He tells the church, don't be foolish, don't get drunk, rather sing and worship together with gratitude to God by submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, what context do you think those church efforts, those morals, should be most pursued? It should be most pursued in marriage. And so Paul takes these, these things about walking in purity, walking in honesty and not deception, walking in the light, not having language that would be crude or offensive to one another. He then applies it to Marriage. Paul launches then into how these things are accomplished in marriage. In marriage, there should be the pursuit of love. In marriage, there is putting away of sexual immorality and deception. In marriage, there should be joyful worship of God together. So he's just following the pattern that we see in Matthew. The church, the demands on all Christians, the accountability of all Christians, now expressed in a marriage. Paul does the same thing in Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3, Paul begins by talking about the fact that we're new creations. 
new people no longer identified by the world, no longer identified by sin and the corruption and the wickedness that is that fills and defines the world. Because of that, we are to seek the things that are above. We are to seek truth and righteousness and holiness. We are to put away sexual immorality and improper passions. We are to put away covetousness, which is idolatry, he says in verse 9. Do not lie to one another, he says. And he finishes by saying the word should dwell richly in you, singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, he says. Again, this is to the church as a whole, but, but where all these church activities realize, first and foremost, it is in our marriages. Where are, we, where are we to pursue honesty most of all? It's in our marriage. Where should we pursue purity and worship? Where should we pursue this kind of discipline and discipleship? It's in our marriages. Colossians three eighteen and onward, it's all in our marriage. If you're a Christian, these pursuits are not sort of lone ranger efforts and you're, you and your spouse sort of live separately and pursue God and do all these things all alone. No, just like we're committed to a church, we are committed even more so to one another. We have another level of covenant with one another. Encouragement to help, the discipleship comes from the member that's closest to you, and that is your spouse. Well, First Peter, you get the idea. First Peter 2 and 3 follow that same pattern, those commitments of being a faithful Christian, same as being faithful to the church, ultimately is going to be realized first and foremost in your relationship of marriage. So all that to say, a commitment to worshiping together, yes, I suppose it, it begins with attending worship on the Lord's Day. But in reality, it's seeing all the biblical and vital connections of discipleship and accountability and the pursuit of holiness and purity and honesty and integrity, all of these things alive in your marriage. The person closest to you in that church family is your spouse. The person who knows whether or not you're really telling the truth is your spouse. The person who can provide the greatest encouragement, the greatest help, the greatest love is your spouse. And the whole church then comes behind these marriages and ensures that these marriages do not turn sour and they are indeed producing faithful believers. So God does not have these two things, the marriage and the church, separated. They are not separated, existing on their own. They are symbiotic, means they help one another, churches and marriages, marriages and churches. Good marriages are people who go in and support faithfully good churches. Good churches are full of people who have good marriages. I hope you see, just sort of as a side here, why it would be ridiculous for a husband and wife to attend two different churches. It's folly. You have two different authorities, for one thing. Then you have two different doctrines. You have two different people telling them to do two different things. They're not worshiping together at all. And every once in a while, we have this, and we begin to counsel with somebody, and we realize very quickly, oh, they, they attend two completely different churches. And we tell them, even if you don't come to our church, attend together, be together. Good marriages and good churches go hand in hand. This is not separate entities that just sort of float around. They are to be all in one, under one umbrella. 
A godly couple is determined to worship together. And all those things that are commanded to a church, first and foremost, it applies to spouses. All right, one more point and we're done. Develop the biblical order of marriage. Develop the biblical order of marriage. Before we jump in, I have to do something. Our society, I think we can agree, is totally messed up when it comes to marriage and family. We are a rotten mess. And one of the biggest lies, if not the biggest lie, that has led to this mess is the lie that role equals value. That is a lie. That role or position or tasks equal value. If you're in the military, you know this. When a lower-ranked sailor or a soldier or a marine or airman gets disgruntled with his role and feels like because he's equal in terms of a, a person to his senior officer that he should be granted rights and privileges. He gets grumpy. He gets frustrated. He starts to complain. His work effort falls off. His anger grows. This eventually will lead to insubordination, and the whole system falls apart. Likewise, when someone higher-ranked feels he's better in value than those ranked below him, he starts to be a bully. He starts to make inappropriate, un- unreasonable demands. He starts to be a jerk to everyone around him, and the whole system again falls apart. Why? Because they have confused role with value. They think role and value are the same thing, that your value is determined by your role. That is a lie, and that is a lie of feminism. It's a lie of egalitarianism. It's a lie of many other philosophies that rule our day. It has tainted our pursuit of racial equality. It has tainted our efforts to ensure growth and experience of our younger people. When I believe role equals value, it doesn't matter whether or not I'm qualified for a job. It doesn't matter if I've proven my abilities or my capability in certain areas. I should be promoted because I'm the same value, because role and value are the same thing. And I believe I'm not treated fairly until I'm in a more authoritative role for which I do not even qualify just because my value, I believe, is equal. We're messed up in terms of equality. We're messed up in this world in terms of role. But we don't fix it by creating whole new areas of inequalities. We fix it by one way, in one way by seeing that role does not equal value. And the reason I go through all that is because this entire generation assumes that role equals value when it comes to marriage. And so when they read verses like Colossians 3.18 or Ephesians 5.22, both of those say, wives submit to your husbands, or they see 1 Peter 3 verse 1, wives be subject to your husbands, or 1 Corinthians 11.3 that says the head of the wife is her husband, they're immediately offended because they believe role equals value. They immediately assume that the the Bible teaches women are not equal. They are not of equal value existentially, then of themselves. Their existence is less than that of men based on their false idea that role equals value. They assume that Christians teach men are better and more valuable to God than women are, but that's not at all what the Bible teaches. Paul says in Galatians, when it comes to the kingdom of God, we're all sons of God, baptized into Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. We are all one in Jesus Christ. How can he say that with a straight face 
Then he talks about wives being subject to their husbands. He says men should only lead and teach in a church. When he says older women should teach younger women. Why? Because Paul and the Bible does not teach that role equals value. That we have duties, we have tasks, they're complementary tasks for the glory of God. We, being the bride of Christ, we Christians, in terms of glory, in terms of value, are definitely not equal to Christ, but we have a role, and we fulfill that role. We serve that role, and we happily, as the body of Christ, in a complementary way, show a picture of Christ in this world. Paul does not believe that even if there are terrible husbands who beat their wives, that somehow we need to undo this idea that role does not equal value. There are plenty of examples of abuse of power and dereliction of duty and all these things, but these anecdotes prove nothing other than that people are sinful. We see this all the time. People who are insubordinate, people, husbands in particular, who are abusive, or perhaps husbands who are doormats. But these are just the evidence of sin, not the evidence that the system that the Bible teaches is wrong. That's no argument against the order in which God created male and female husband and wife. So when we come to this passage, instead of assuming, as so many do, that Paul or the Bible, they're old-fashioned and they're misogynistic, and no, let's just assume that God wants a particular order. And this can be done without husbands abusing their wives. This can be done that without wives subverting their husbands. We just come to it and say God wants a level of order. He's not a God of confusion. He is not a God of chaos, but of order. And from creation, he planted an order in the family, in even marriage. And we are happiest and most content when we pursue that order. That order is that wives are respect and follow their husbands, and that husbands are to gently lead their wives and families. Now, how is this going to look in your marriage, well, I don't know. I have to roll up my sleeves and get involved in what's going on in your marriage to know specifically. And the fundamental issue is, are you pursuing this order? Are you going to get something wrong about this? Of course, we all do. It does not follow that when you get something wrong that something's messed up about God's order. Pursue and develop this order in your marriage. And I would just apply this test. Husbands, are you leading? Do you demonstrate the love and kindness and patience and gentleness in your leadership? Do you consider your wife and her desires in your leadership? Wives, are you seeking to be submissive? It comes down to a difference. Are you trusting what God has said about the order of marriage and therefore entrusting your husband to follow what God says here? I mean, some of you, you're going to be tempted to be a doormat. Maybe your personality lends to that, to being a, a doormat. Figure out how to grow a spine. Others of you, men, you're going to be tempted not to be a doormat, to be, but just to be a big jerk, to boss people around. That's also not what God intends. I just read out of 1 Peter 3. Do this with gentleness and understanding. Think about your wife. Consider her. Ladies, at that point, when I, your husband's being a jerk, we need you to put our face in your hands and say, sweetheart, in a very submissive way, sweetheart, you're an idiot. 
help us lead you in the right way and be kindly, kind and godly. Help us lead in that way. This kind, this kind of activity and this pursuit of order doesn't have to be painful and hard and everybody's reluctant to do what God calls them to do. It can be a fun pursuit, again, in this pursuit of holiness and godliness in your marriage. Decide you will fight for your marriage. Demonstrate humility, constant repentance and forgiveness. Determine to worship together and develop this biblical order of marriage. Are there other things that we can find in the Bible? Sure. I almost made a list of like 10 things, but I figured we'd be here for forever if we did that. I think of 1 Corinthians 7 that talks about pursuing intimacy in your marriage. Produce children, Genesis 1 and 2, if you're able. Following that, I think of both passages in Ephesians and Colossians tell us to raise our children together, this joint effort. There are many other commands, but my prayer is that we at least start with these things that we see sort of drawing from Matthew 19. Well, let's pray God would help us in these efforts. Father, we do thank you for these things. We thank you for these truths. And, Lord, in some ways it's a rebuke to my own heart, my own leadership of my family. It's a rebuke to us in terms of our pursuit of holiness and our team effort as husband and wife to pursue these things. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd bless us in our efforts to do this. Help us, Lord, as we seek to picture the body of Christ, which is the bride of Christ, this wonderful relationship you have and gentle leadership, the good shepherd, and respect and submission. Pray that our marriages become a, a picture of these things. And Lord, if we're to do that, Lord, we do want to determine to live these things out, and at any cost, whatever means necessary, Lord, we want to pursue this kind of unity and harmony in our marriages. And Lord, if there's anyone here as they consider these things and look at their marriage, perhaps they've come to the understanding that they've not been born again. Maybe even now you're speaking to them, your spirit is moving them to finally and first and finally and for the first time ever truly repent and follow Christ, convict them of their sin, call them to salvation. Perhaps that's the source of their marriage problems. We pray that they would genuinely repent and follow after Christ. Grant them this faith and repentance today. All of us need to continue in that faith and repentance to help us do this. In the name of Jesus we ask. Amen.